right. As many wires here as in intensive care, I think. <laughs> well, it's good to have got here. I very foolishly put my sat-nav on. And it somehow didn't get St Nicholas in, but just got Stevenage. And so I had a nice tour around the whole area before I eventually got here. I should have relied on my memory, which might have got me here better. Anyway, we are here. And we're in Isaiah 55. It's often said, if you see something for sale and it looks too cheap, it probably is. Caveat emptor. Buyer beware. Don't buy something that appears to be offered at a ridiculously low price because you're bound to be fooled. And then we come to Isaiah. And Isaiah tells us that there's something to be purchased even if you've got no money. Come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Is this too good an offer to be believed? Is it to be rejected immediately? As you would with that cheap holiday that will take you to wonderful sunshine at hardly any expense. No. I think this is going to be the last of the present series of sermons on Isaiah. If I've read Dave's chart correctly... There's a great big gap, but it does seem that after this you go somewhere else. Which for some of you might be a great shout, No, we want to stay with Isaiah. And others of you might be saying, Phew, (coughs) there are some other books in the Bible. I don't know. Maybe eventually you'll get back to the last chapters of Isaiah, which are quite which are great chapters, and please, Dave, if you haven't got them in your series yet, find a time to preach them. But here we are in chapter 55, and maybe before we come to think about this great offer that's made, this opportunity to purchase without money, we need to just remind ourselves how we've got here. Isaiah has been grappling, hasn't he, right from the beginning with this great problem God is a gracious God God is a covenant God God intends to bless his people Israel but they keep on sinning they keep on turning from him they keep on rebelling and even when they're taken into exile they still their hearts seem to go from God rather than to God And over Easter you will have got to the great solution of the problem, won't you? As you spent two or three services, I think, in Isaiah 53, looking at that great chapter that speaks about the wonder of a saving God, the wonder of the servant of the Lord who comes and takes our iniquities upon him, the one who suffered in our place and that great word that there is now salvation why not because of what we have done but because of what God has done and that is of course the background to this free offer that we have here it's free at the point of purchase 
free at the point of need, but it's not without cost. But the cost has been paid. And there, back in chapter 53, we saw the cost. And we saw the the way in which throughout Isaiah, this question about who the servant of the Lord is, begins to get clearer and clearer. And we come to understand that, yes, there is someone who is going to be human, to take upon himself the sin of his people. But this is also God himself. At, um, I don't know whether I should put this on the recording, but I will anyway. At Easter, um, I did something which I don't think I've done very often in the past. I wrote to another minister to question his doctrine. We had a service in the Market Square, and there was this sermon, Jesus gave up his divinity when he became man. And I wrote to the preacher, and not only pointed out to him that the creeds do seem to say something a bit different, but that if he takes that position, the whole heart of the gospel has disappeared. Because what is this message of Isaiah? The message is that it is God himself who is there taking our sins upon him. It's not just some strange Jewish carpenter who happened to be crucified, whose sins, who hope we hope somehow bore our sins. It's not some victim. It's not some demonstration of cosmic child abuse, as someone has said. It is God himself, in the person of his son, taking the guilt the reality of our sin into his own body and suffering the judgment on our sin that we might be free. If the divinity of Christ has disappeared, then our salvation has disappeared with it. Here is the infinite God bearing the infinity of human sin that we might enjoy eternity with him. So when Isaiah in chapter 55 now says, come all you who are thirsty, when he has this great offer of free drink and free food, it's on the basis that the price has been paid, and is being paid by God himself. God has provided this salvation. But this is writing to Israel. This is writing to the exiles, a people who are still questionable in their loyalty to God. And here we now see that there is another side to it. There is the freeness of the offer. There is the availability of the salvation to which we can contribute nothing because we are without money. But there is the need to come and purchase, to come and buy. There is a need for a response. It's not just that we say, oh, that's nice, isn't it? God's provided salvation. I'll get on with the rest of my life and hopefully it will come to me at some stage. It's rather an invitation to respond to the God who's made this provision. Come buy. 
Why are you spending your money? Interesting the way in which you've now got money to spend, but you know, you are spending money on things that don't bring you profit. What is the profit profit talking about here? He's talking about the fact that these people are not loyal to God alone. They think there are other sources. (coughs) You know how the BBC always seems to be correct when it talks about some product and then it says at the end there are other sources of supply. The prophet is saying there are no other sources of supply. This is not a spiritual supermarket that you go into and go along the shelves and say, yes, I'll have that, and perhaps I'll just have that one as well, and that one. Why are you wasting money in looking anywhere else rather than looking directly to the God of Israel? One of my students uh, now a former student of course uh, probably a contemporary with Dave actually I remember when she went on a placement to a church in, in the east end of London and she was told to go and do some parish visiting people connected to the congregation and she sort of told me she went and visited this woman and went into her flat and there was a crucifix on the wall and there was a Buddha and there was a picture of a Hindu god And this woman spoke about her spirituality. Well, um, my student was a bit questioning the theology, I think, of the vicar. But certainly the theology of this woman. Who thought that you could have a bit of Jesus and a bit of Buddha and a bit of a Hindu God. And that would give you a spiritual experience. The Israelites were just the same. They thought there were other gods they could worship alongside Yahweh. But now he says very clearly, no. Don't go and waste your money on these other things. There are no other sources of supply. It is me and me alone. There is no other god like me. Now, we maybe don't have Buddhas in our homes. Well, I hope you don't. If you, if you do, come and talk to me afterwards and we'll deal with it. I remember once after a service in Indonesia, when I worked there, someone said to me, um, there's a lot of things that I've been holding on to that aren't Christian, that I need to dispose of. Can we deal with them? So I said, well, the next time I come and preach here, bring them along, and we'll deal with them then. And so this man came along then with various things that he'd been holding on to, magical things. And I said, now you take each one and tell me what it is, and then we'll destroy it. And so we destroyed these things one by one, and we had some paraffin, and it... uh, made a nice bonfire and there was this little chris, a little sword and he said I've spent six months giving spiritual power to that and now I want to destroy it here was a piece of cloth that um, uh, he'd killed someone with 
Here was something else that he'd given to the wife of a general because the general was being unfaithful to bring him back. Here was a stone he'd brought from his home village as a protection. And now he said, I only want to follow Jesus Christ. I want to get rid of all of these. So we did. The stone was the most curious because it just disappeared as soon as we put it in the fire. But there was someone who was turning from. But what about us? We probably don't have things like that at home. But what else do we trust in? There are things that we possess. There's our success in life. There's our property. There's our ambition. There's our entertainment. There's me. I am the captain of my destiny. Captain of my soul. Is that where we are? Or are we those who say, it is Yahweh alone that we serve. He is the only God. Because Yahweh promises us not just an occasional relationship with us, but an eternal covenant, he says. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Now, last week, you were in the previous chapter, and you heard about the covenant that God made with Noah. Well, it's in the chapter at least, so maybe you heard about it. The covenant that God made with Noah. After the flood, I will never again flood the earth in this way. And the, that usurped symbol, the rainbow that God put in the sky as a sign of his promise. And today we come to another covenant, the promise that God made to David. What was that promise? There will always be one of your heirs sitting on the throne, forever. Of course, it was a promise that couldn't be fulfilled until there was the infinite God as man, the eternal God as man, Jesus Christ, who could sit upon that throne, become the covenant God, become the one who relates to his people as their rulers. We'll soon get to Ascension Day. We'll come again to Matthew 28, maybe. Jesus saying after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am the king of the universe. Because here is something that comes into Isaiah that is even greater than anything that was said to David. I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you do not know, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God. Here was an international promise. If you're not Jewish, be encouraged. You're in Isaiah. You're there. We have a place there. We are the people for whom the covenant has been established. Isaiah here just has the picture of the nations flocking to Jerusalem. As they begin to see the wonder of a people who are manifesting the nature of the God of Israel. But when he gets to chapter 66, which hopefully you will eventually get to, when you get to chapter 66, you see people going out to the nations. 
not just the nations coming, but people going out to the nations. Oh goodness, have I dropped the... Sorry, I've dropped this, have I? Which one's that? I'll try and put it back in again. Fun? Yes, well I can't walk around then though. So, yes, the voice comes out much louder still. A message to the nations. People going out to the nations. The message that is not just for Israel, but for the whole of the world. Here is the great promise. A covenant to be made. But respond first to the offer. Come now and take it. And then God goes on to speak more about himself and his character. It's a wonderful passage, isn't it? Um, A God whose thoughts are not our thoughts. This has been demonstrated throughout Isaiah. A God, and particularly in chapter 53, a God that we don't have to find ways of getting to know him because he has come to know us. A God that we don't have to try and find how can we please him, how can we pacify him, but rather a God who says to us, I have come to you in my son. His thoughts are not our thoughts, not the way in which the world thinks about religion. Because here is a God who has his purposes and will fulfill them. This is one of the characteristics that's come throughout Isaiah. A God who says what is going to happen and then does it. And we can think of these words coming to the exiles in Babylon as they hear these words of Isaiah. Words that had been written a long while earlier but now becoming relevant. People in Babylon questioning Is the word of God true or not? Will God fulfill his purposes? Jeremiah, another prophet, had said that 70 years would be the time of the exile. And if you read the book of Daniel, you will know that Daniel gets to the point when his calendar has got round to 70 years and he then says, Lord, it's time, what are you going to do? Here in Isaiah we've already heard the name of the king who's going to come and release them, Cyrus. And you can imagine the commentators, the um, newspaper people sort of sitting there in Babylon and saying, hmm, where, where was this Cyrus fellow? Oh, there's that Elamite, he's called Cyrus. Is he the one? And then as he begins to gather the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire begins to get bigger, and the attacks begin to come on Babylon, then the word, yes, God was right, it was Cyrus, he's going to release us, we're going back to Jerusalem. Now God's word is going to be fulfilled. What a God this is. A God who says what is going to happen and carries out his purposes. A God whose word can be relied upon. A God whose word we need to remember. We're in the Easter, post-Easter period, aren't we? And we think of Jesus speaking to his disciples. We think of that lovely story of that couple on the way to Emmaus. 
and Jesus sort of saying, don't you remember? And he'd keep on saying to his disciples, don't you remember? And don't you understand that there were all those books in the Old Testament speaking about me, which you've been reading all your life, and still you don't realise what I was saying then? Here is the fulfilment of all those words. And the word of God is unlike any other word. The scriptures are unlike any other book. The Lord here through Isaiah says that his word doesn't return to him empty. What does that mean? It means that God's words that are spoken have a purpose and have power. And this is rather remarkable, isn't it? That here are words written thousands of years ago. Mm, what are we, nearly two, 3,000 years ago. Words spoken by the God of Israel, who is also the God of the universe. And his spirit takes those words and comes and brings them into our hearts. So that we read them and they become words that are living words. And we get to that point where suddenly the text leaps out at us and grabs hold of us. And we get to that point where we say, yes, this is true. And then we begin to respond to it. And the Spirit of God begins to change us. And we become a new person. Because God's Spirit is active. We really begin to understand that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Because we're beginning to learn the thoughts of God. This is why the Scriptures are so essential. And so central to Christian life. We must be those who are coming to the scriptures. When I was at university, I was challenged that if I was someone, if, you, if you're going to be someone who's going to be active in Christian life, you need to read the word of God often. I'm challenged to read it through once every year. Well, many years I've succeeded, some I haven't. But, you know, a few years on from university days... This was always the challenge. You know, the person who spoke to me said, well, you know, if you're someone who's just going to read the Bible a little bit, you know, maybe four or five years before you get through the Bible, you know, you're, what, 21 now, you'll be 25 before you've even read God's Word through once. And then you do it again and you're 30 and you're maybe married and got a family and you're active in the church and you've only read God's word twice. And you know there are Christians who've never read the whole of God's word. Christians who don't know everything that God has revealed to us. We may have a lot of questions of what does God say about so and so? But we don't know what he does say about what he has spoken about. God has given to us his word. And it's a living word that will transform us. How are we transformed? Through the word of God. So Isaiah brings us a challenge, I think. To be people who are into the word. Who are learning from the word. Who are coming to God day by day and saying, Lord, 
open my eyes that I might see the treasures you have within your word. That I might know more about you. There's that wonderful verse in Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belongs to the Lord our God, but they're the things that he has revealed to us and his children, that we might obey them. Many are ignorant of the word of God. We are those who should be learning the word of God and letting it work within us by his spirit. And then let us have joy. Joy in our religion. It was C.H. Spurgeon, I think, the Baptist preacher of the 19th century, who said, if your religion doesn't bring you joy, change it. Christian religion will bring you joy. Christ will bring you joy. And Isaiah has these nice words here about you shall go out in joy, be led forth in peace, and this great picture of a renewed creation. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. I look forward to seeing trees clapping their hands. One of the Victorian hymn writers tried to sort of express it in another way, speaking about the experience of knowing God and how you view his creation differently. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen, birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with deeper beauties shine, since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. Perhaps you'd rather stay with Isaiah. Because Isaiah has this picture of God completing his work. The perfection of creation. That God is not just saying, come to me, that you might know me. He's not just saying, Israel, repent. He's saying, I have a purpose. And my final purpose is a new heaven and a new earth where there is only righteousness. The fall will be undone. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 8, speaks about creation being subject to futility until the redemption of the sons of God. Yes, people are saved first. Creation is saved after that. And what we can look forward to with joy is God completing his work. That we will enjoy new bodies in a new heaven and a new earth with a renewed creation that will endure forever. Where the thorns will disappear, the briars will go, the tears will go, the partings will go. God's victory will be there. But how does it start for us? It starts with a response to the invitation. There are no other products to go to. Only God. Come, all who are thirsty, drink the water that Christ provides. Amen.